This idea of climate action versus climate commitment. And I think that that is so important. It's a slight shift in wording. And again, I'm a person of words, but to tr be truly committed to doing something versus taking action, like that's a, a slight shift. And again, our sense of responsibility. So I would encourage everyone today tuning in, you know, A, thank you for just being willing to have this conversation, to talk about it, to, to you know, really act on that responsibility to not look away. And ultimately to think about what it means to take climate action versus to make a climate commitment and to truly be committed to, you know, not ever getting distracted from this issue or getting pulled away to do something else. And that is true commitment. That's Rosanna Shai, the author of the new book, California Against the Sea. Rosanna is an environmental reporter with the Los Angeles Times and she was appearing on a special webinar organized by the California Natural Resources Agency. Yes, welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I am your host, Robert McLean. It's so great to have you on board. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Let's have a listen now to this Secretary Speaker Series and first we hear from the moderator, Wade Crowfoot. Welcome everyone to our Secretary Speaker Series. My name is Wade Crowfoot and I lead our California Natural Resources Agency, uh, which is a big, broad agency charged with stewarding our environmental natural resources. I'm one of a whole lot of people advancing Governor Newsom and California's environmental agenda, which in many ways uh, we think is among the most ambitious in the world. Some of you may have been part of the speaker series uh, before, but for those who are joining for the first time, this is an opportunity to create a public dialogue that lifts up big ideas, key priorities, and thinkers and leaders from across California who are shaping our future. So today we are very excited to introduce and welcome Rosanna Shaw to our discussion. Many of us know Rosanna as an award-winning reporter at the LA Times. Uh, hey, Rosanna, you're now on screen. Um, hey, Secretary Corfoot. Uh, so we're so excited to have you. You know, many of us have been reading your articles for a very long time in the Los Angeles Times, and you have done incredible work covering California's coasts. Uh, and of course, we're here today because you have written a book, which is an extraordinary book. Uh, and I'm so excited to be in conversation with you for the next hour. Uh, as you know, we're gonna I'm gonna have a chance to ask some questions about uh, about you writing the book and the book, and then we're gonna bring on a couple of of guests uh, with us uh, to be in conversation around what what does this book and its ideas mean for the future of California's coast, given climate change and sea level rise. Um, so first of all, let me just welcome you and ask how you're doing generally. Thank you. Um, how am I doing? I have not <laughs> slept, I think, in three months. But um, yeah, it's been really inspiring to just be on the road since the book came out and to be opening these conversations with a lot more people. And it's been really, really, really cool to just kind of hear how folks are feeling and to really start deepening this conversation that we so desperately need to do in California. Amazing. Now, you had a very busy day job as a reporter, and you decided to write this book uh, on top of that. Talk, talk about your decision to write the book, uh, you know, why you decided to write it, and then 
the journey of actually writing what I think is your first uh, full uh, full book. Yes, first book, probably the last book. <laughs> and thank you. I mean, I, I've been reflecting a lot on kind of this reporting to book writing process these last few months. And, you know, to start just to put my day job in context for folks tuning in, you know, I, I just want to say that I feel so lucky to be an environmental reporter at the LA Times that only has to focus on coastal and ocean issues. So at the LA Times, you know, our environment reporters are each assigned to a pretty specialized focus, you know, whether it's water or wildfires or air quality or extreme weather or environmental justice. And, you know, that really allows us to go way deeper on these more specific topics. And I should also, I'd love to shout out my colleague, Sammy Roth, who um, is our first ever climate columnist with a very specialized lens too on the clean energy transition. And he helms the LA Times environment newsletter, Boiling Point, which is a really great way to catch up on environmental news every Thursday, specifically about you know the West Coast. And- A lot of us read that religiously. <laughs> at me as well. It's the first thing I read every Thursday. And so, you know, with my focus specifically on the California coast and the ocean, you know, for, for years, I would write what would be considered the more old school approach to newspaper reporting. A new study comes out with a bunch of big, scary numbers, you know, whether it's a USGS study that found that more than two thirds of our beaches could come completely vanish by the end of the century if we continue business as usual, or the fact that salt marshes as a ecosystem along the West Coast could go completely extinct. You know, seven feet of sea level rise is kind of what we're looking at now for the extreme end of sea level rise projections in California by 2100. And I would, I used to write all of these stories as a breaking news story. Every time a new update came out, a new projection came out, a new number came out. And, you know, You've all seen these stories. A new study found that, you know, two thirds of our beaches could vanish by 2100, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, these stories would make a big splash. It's so important to get these numbers on the record. You know, these articles usually made the front page. It would often be one of the most read articles on the LA Times website. But then, you know, people move on the next day in the same way a disaster, sadly, you know, wipes out a community. And then two weeks later, the sun comes out and another disaster somewhere else, you know, distracts us and draws attention away and we move on to the next news cycle. And so for me, it was really this awakening of just re recognizing how do we make these stories last longer than the news cycle? And also just recognizing, too, as a science reporter first, you know, people tend to remember the stories you tell them, not necessarily the data. I, I mean, they remember how they feel when they hear those data points, but, you know, and the, you know, how those facts might trigger emotions. But, you know, it's my job as a reporter to help make meaning out of this data. So, you know, a few years ago, I really started to think about, okay, what, what would it take to possibly turn my reporting into a book, a book on sea level rise that lives a little bit longer than, you know, the news cycle, and I felt like I went on a lot of first dates with like agents and big publishers and kind of just feeling out what the market um, reception would be for a book like this. And I will just say, and I, I'm, I have a feeling our audience today is mostly Californians. I was stunned by just like really learning the fact that the market, the big market approach to these kind of climate change books is to have California be one chapter in this broader book about sea level rise. You know, a lot of folks were like, you need to start with like New York, go to Miami, go to Louisiana. Isn't like, you know, Indonesia's capital moving to a physical other island because Jakarta is sinking. You know, someone was like, you have to go to Venice, Italy. And then California would end up being this one chapter in this broader book. And for me, covering kind of specifically the California coast, and I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, every place you go to is different. You know, we we belong to this collective landscape, but 
so often that the, the stereotypical trope of California gets reinforced when you do a book like this. And so, you know, how, so I really started to think about what it would take to write a book just about California and to find someone who would actually be willing to publish that book rather than just do a chapter where we parachute into Malibu, reinforce all of the stereotypes of California that we all love to hate on. And, you know, I really just felt so lucky to have met Martina at Heyday Books, you know, this wonderful indie publisher based in Berkeley that has a track record of publishing books that really broaden the way we think about nature and history in California with a particular eye for recentering indigenous perspectives and recognizing that we can't talk about nature in a silo. There are intersections to politics, the economy and social justice. And, you know, the other thing that I feel like I got told a lot when I started to think about writing a book was just this book had to be in first person. That's what everyone told me. Nonfiction books need that like personal eye narrative through line. Someone was like, you need to intersect this with like a memoir or travel log approach. And I'm an LA Times reporter who will forever be super old school. And I was like, hell no, am I writing this book in first person? And so it was also finding someone who's willing to believe in a book that would decenter the author and really give space to all of the communities and people and places that I wanted to take the reader to. And so with Martina at Heyday, I asked her, you know, can this book be in third person? And can we truly publish a book just about California that would matter to the rest of the world? And Martina told me, I want to publish the book that you think needs to be written, not the book that I think would sell. And so that's how we began our conversation. And that's where we ended up. And I, I've been on the road now for um, a couple of weeks since the book came out. And it's been really incredible to hear how the story of California and our relationship to the coastline does resonate nationally. And um, so thank you to Heyday and just thank you to California for also giving me a book's length worth of like information to write about. And I, I had to cut so many things too. You know, I could write three books about California alone. Well, I know there was kind of a buzz when you were, when people knew that you were writing it and then it, it, it reached fever pitch in the summer when you're talking about uh, uh, releasing it. And then now we actually have it in the, in the hard copy form. And that's incredible. And and I just want to give a shout out to Heyday Books as well. You know, I got turned on to Heyday by a colleague and friend, Obi Kaufman, who is, uh, who, who publishes, a, writes a lot of books that Heyday publishes and incredible. The, the authors are supporting and the story they're helping uh, tell uh, about California um, as you put it. So uh, I know Gita put in the link to Heyday Books and hope people can check out uh, all of your colleagues that are writing uh, for that publisher. So let's jump into the book. Uh, you know, a lot of us have probably read this, but some of us uh, haven't. And the good news is there's not really a, you know, we don't have to give a spoiler alert because uh, it's not that there's some dramatic conclusion because it's still being, the future is being written. But I want to ask you first, you know, the book starts um, with a discussion of the Shumash people uh, on the Central Coast and um, their stewardship of, of uh, lands around Santa Barbara and the Channel Islands since time immemorial. And the book also ends um, by sharing a really uh, inspirational journey of the Kashaya Band of Pomo Indians uh, up north. So want to ask you, I mean, I thought it was really powerful. And then, of course, throughout the book, you, you know, you, you weave the the perspective and the narrative of Native peoples in this book. And I want to just ask you sort of what, why, why start the book um, with, with that lens and why end the book with that lens and how did the Indigenous or tribal perspective inform how you tell this story? Yeah, thank you for opening with this question and for just really connecting with the through line. You know, I mean, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about 
who we tend to value as expert in these conversations and, you know, and whether we can kind of recalibrate this expertise and how we honor expertise, you know, does it have to be only scientists who have published papers in peer reviewed journals? Does it have to be a lawyer with a law degree or an engineer with a coastal engineering license or a historian who has published a book, you know, who tends to be, you know, a white historian who has really been in the system and, you know, as a reporter, I am also like just constantly conscious of the fact that when when I quote someone, I give them power. And when I choose to tell someone's story, I give that story power. And so writing a book really allowed me to think about, think even more deeply, you know, beyond my like 1000 word limit stories for the LA Times, you know, what, what does it mean to redistribute and like share that power? And so, you know, when, when I heard the the story that you'll read in the beginning of the book, you know, when I when I was I was speaking with Alicia Cordero, who is both a biologist and a member of the Coastal Band of the Chumash Nation, and you know, we were riffing on sea level rise, past, present, and future, and she presented this beautiful interpretation of a you know beloved story by the Chumash people, and I knew immediately when I heard her, um, the way she connected to that story, that that was the beginning of the book. And really just thinking about how do we present indigenous stories, for example, as not just a story, but also an oral record and a data point or data points. And and in this case, you know, Alicia's interpretation was that this Chumash story, this age old story is actually possibly the first oral record of sea level rise in California. And you know, for me too, as like a reporter trained in kind of old school science reporting, I think it's really important to think about how to incorporate indigenous knowledge and Western science together in the same conversation in a way that truly complements each other and builds on each other rather than as an either either or, which I, I feel like I still see pretty often. I think there is really encouraging movement to include indigenous perspectives in these conversations, but they still tend to be either a separate section, you know, 300 pages into a report or at the beginning of a report, but then we kind of pivot back into the Western science um, approach. And I think that it is really important to start integrating this in a way where the, the information and the knowledge is actually truly in conversation with each other. And so I love what you just said too about the ending, because I knew for years how to start this book but I had no idea how to end this book because how do you end a book about a story that about, how do you end a book about an issue where, you know, the story and the ending is still to be written based on the decisions that we make today. And, you know, it took me years. I kept, I I wrote so many different versions of the ending from a range of hope versus despair versus, you know, California, you know, the, the title I joked at one point wasn't California against the sea. It should be California in the sea, but um, that's not, that's not the ending we're barreling towards yet. And when I met and spoke with the former chair of the Kashaya band of Pomo Indians and heard his story, everything clicked. I mean, I was like, that is the ending. And, you know, something I heard a lot in the course of my reporting is that it is so important to see indigenous expertise as something not just from the past, but also very much in the present and also critical for the future. So there was just something really powerful and beautiful and just really important to me to like the fact that the book gave the Chumash the first word and the Kashaya the last word. And this is truly a book about California and our relationship to the coast past, present and future. Yeah, agreed. I, I thought it was so powerful. And as you know, a lot of folks like uh, like our agents or a lot of people in, in our agency and beyond are really on this journey. 
uh, to incorporate traditional ecological knowledge, as you say, as a core um, sort of input into the, into how we care for the environment. So uh, just it really resonated with me, and I, I appreciate that. So let's talk about the decisions that coastal communities are making. And, you know, capturing the zeitgeist uh, or the sort of the mood of, of California and the coast I think if it's honest to say that, you know, in reading a lot of uh, of your stories from coastal communities, there's some amount of denial, at least among yes. some residents, some communities about the threat that sea level rise uh, not only will pose, but it is posing and the impacts. I just want to ask you, and is that fair, uh, that sort of assessment of some level of denial? And in, to what extent do you think that is a barrier to taking action that's that's needed? Yeah, I mean, some level of denial, I'd say a lot of, I would say we're a couple degrees above some, but I think it's interesting. I mean, I want to clarify that in California, and I'm sure you're, you and your staff run into this too, I don't really run into folks who are climate change deniers. I don't think people are necessarily denying that climate change is happening or just the very premise of global warming. But the denial in the debate, I truly feel when I speak to folks, is time. How much time do we have? Some folks truly think that this is not an issue we need to be thinking about in the near term, and this is something for the next generation. Other folks are like, we should have started 30, 40, 50 years ago. And this idea of time and the debate on time is truly where we're stuck because that's where the planning process comes in, right? And that's where the tension points and the flashpoints start to happen. At what point do we need to start taking action to start planning for this future? And at what does it feel too premature or does it feel too late? And so that's kind of the tension that I hear a lot and the denial that I hear a lot. And I, I, I think speaking to, to time, I, as a reporter too, it's really fun, fun to kind of connect the dots across different worlds and different silos. But I'm, I'm just truly blown away by the, the time scales and the arbitrary time scales that we are honestly condition, conditioned to think in sometimes. I'm just gonna say, throw out the 30 year mortgage. People are worried, for example, about how planning for sea level rise might affect their ability to take out a mortgage or refinance their home. The 30 year mortgage is a, to me, a fairly arbitrary time frame. And if you think about, and then you kind of match that to all of the sea level rise conversations now happening in the state where we're trying to plan for three and a half feet of sea level rise by 2050 or whatever it is you want to plan for until 2050, that's less than 30 years from now. So there's all these interesting disconnects that I do think also perpetuates the sense of resistance and denial. And, and ultimately with denial, you know, for me, I mean, I think it's one thing to reinforce and point out and amplify the resistance. And in the process of reporting on a book, I was truly trying to find kind of the core of why change feels so impossible and insurmountable for some people. And, you know, I really re learned that it's actually you have to start by understanding how people are feeling and validating what they're feeling. And you know, I've been thinking a lot too. I don't know if folks have read Naomi Klein's book, Doppelganger, but um, she was saying, uh, she made this really interesting point that I've been thinking a lot about, but just this idea that her book's about conspiracy theories, but the idea that conspiracy theory theorists tend to get the facts wrong, but the emotions right. And that, you know, we are, we are not doing ourselves a service by not attending to those emotions. So for me, I, the way I open a lot of these conversations with folks who are more in denial of whether climate change or time or the need to take action today, you know, I really begin with validating their emotions and understanding what is driving those emotions. And, you know, beyond that, 
there is just so much commonality in what people are afraid of and what they actually want for the future. And I do think there is this tendency to hone in on the differences, but there's actually a lot of commonality. And so for me, like, it's really truly like we need everyone at the table. We need to talk to everyone at the table. We need to make sure everyone at the table feels heard because we're not going to be able to solve this problem without even the most resistant folks. But I think that honoring how they're feeling is truly important. And that does take time. But um, yeah, I guess, I mean, a lot of folks have asked me like, what was the most surprising thing you've, you've come across in California in the process of writing this book? And I would say I was really surprised by the commonality among even the folks that you think you would disagree with the most. That's that's amazing, you know, because there are some really good examples of leaders who were advancing certain ideas, like the so-called managed retreat, which of course has become, you know, really- My favorite words. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And there's been a ton of pushback um, uh, on that. And then you you share the the story of the city of Marina, uh, just north of, of Monterey, um, which is taking a much more proactive approach to recognizing that there may be some land use changes that are needed right adjacent to the sea. Um, any secret sauce to, uh, to, to bringing a community uh, along toward really leaning into the planning and asking tough questions about whether it's infrastructure changes or what's needed? Yeah, a couple of thoughts here. And thank you for just addressing the uh, the managed retreat elephant in the room. I mean, managed retreat, just for folks who don't know this term, is like essentially acknowledging that the ocean is moving inland and that we're supposed to move with the ocean before we're in the way and that it would be wiser and more, more cost efficient and also life safety <laughs> effective to do that before the disaster actually happens. But the term managed retreat in itself is, I think, a very technical term, a very wonky term. And I think we introduced this term in a lot of climate change planning spaces without really thinking about how emotionally that might affect people. I mean, retreat in our country feels like surrender. It feels like giving up. No one likes to be managed. And so I think on the one hand, branding of that term is is a sticking point. And I think that's something that a lot of folks in this space have already transitioned into thinking about more effective ways of communicating what managed retreat actually is. Um, another kind of insight, I guess, for lack of a better word, that I that really came into clarity for me is just this notion that, you know, a lot of people still think of responding to sea level rise as a one-time action, this big, scary action that's going to be you know, decided by this one mega vote by the city council or the coastal commission, and that, you know, it's going to cost a lot and it's going to require a lot of sacrifice and the entire world is going to change. And, you know, but sea level rise planning and a lot of climate change planning is actually a process, a very, very long-term process where I think everyone I talk to acknowledges the fact that something about their world today that they love is going to feel different or be different 40, 50, 60 years from now. But they also acknowledge that none of those changes need to happen tomorrow. So how do we shift this perspective of going from, you know, big, scary one-time action to entering this transition process towards something that, you know, towards a conversation and a vision, like a planning exercise that is not centered on what we're going to lose in this process, but what we can actually gain in this process if we kind of preemptively took those actions. And, you know, the I'm thinking too of A.R. Siders, who is a um, amazing expert at University of Delaware's Disaster Research Center. She once said that, you know, how do you convince people to eat broccoli today so that they won't get a heart attack 70 years from now when most people still just, you know, 
want to drink and have fun and not think about 70 years from now. But that's truly where we're stuck. And yeah, I guess one other thought would just be that and I'd be curious too to hear what other folks think about this. I'm blown away by the number of people who still think about the coast itself as a static place that you go here, you go to the beach today and then you come back next summer and the parking lot's still supposed to be there. The beach is supposed to look exactly the same. And that this is like a place that we go to and a place that, you know, inherently is supposed to remain the same for us. And our, our built environment, the way we've built our environment, you know, since California became California has really reinforced this notion of like the fact that we have imposed permanence onto what actually is an inherently impermanent space. So if you look at Pacific Coast Highway, the rail lines, a lot of our communities, we have kind of fixed this line in the sand that isn't supposed to move. But if you think about it, if you stand on the beach for one afternoon and look at the tide line, that tide line is different every time the wave comes ashore. And like the coast is actually this really dynamic process between land and ocean. But we have completely lost sight of that in so many of these conversations. And so Part of my work that was really hard, too, was just to kind of dismantle this notion that the coast is supposed to be static. And managed retreat is part of acknowledging that the ocean is supposed to, if the ocean is moving inland, the coastline is supposed to move with it, and we're supposed to move with that coastline. Yeah. So it seems like a problem, you know, a problem statement is, you know, sea level rise is already impacting California. You you point out really good examples of that, including in Imperial Beach, which is our, our southernmost community in, in California having regular regular flooding as a result of storm surge uh, intensified by by sea level rise um, and examples of sort of across up, up, up and down the coast some communities are really leaning in on planning which is great and there's progress there and then other communities uh, not so much what, a couple examples that you provide uh, of of what what's happening in sort of a, a forward-looking way I was really inspired by and I would ask you to talk about them. One is in the Bay Area in the town of El Viso, uh, which is in the South Bay, sort of at the bottom of the San Francisco uh, Bay, and the, the work that they're doing on a nature-based solution to reduce flooding. And then further south, uh, dune restoration in Malibu. Can you just talk about each of those sort of nature-based solutions as one uh, sort of a couple of examples of where we get it right? Yes, this is Climate Conversations, and we're listening to an interview with the author of a new book, California Against the Sea, and an environmental reporter with the LA Times, Rosanna Shai. Yeah, wetlands in El Viso and the salt ponds and then dunes in Malibu. I mean, I think part of, too, just like allowing and helping people really see the coast again as a dynamic space is also like I had so much fun and so much wonder kind of relearning these like in-between spaces between ocean and like true, true land. And and, and like just kind of like these ma the magic of a place that is actually supposed to be sometimes fully underwater and then sometimes fully dry and sometimes half underwater. And I think there's been a really encouraging and inspiring movement across the state to revive dune systems, for example, and to basically acknowledge that more than 90% of our coastal wetlands in California have been altered or destroyed in the spirit for the sake of development. And how do you undo some of that in the face of sea level rise? And to really acknowledge that if you just let nature do its thing and leverage nature and its natural wisdom, um, there are natural flood buffers that already exist, like wetlands, you know, beyond the biodiversity um, components and its ability to sequester carbon, even sometimes even more effectively than tropical forests. You know, wetlands are a great 
flood buffer. We look, we saw that in Superstorm Sandy back on the East Coast, where there was there were dune systems in New Jersey that you know those communities were spared um, because there was a dune and a wetland to like kind of help buffer those spaces. And but the thing with like these living shorelines or nature-based solutions is again we come back to the notion of time. Like we need time to rebuild these spaces. We need time to identify where along the coast there is still the opportunity to revive a dune system or to undo kind of the way we've trapped a wetland, you know, whether in the form of a salt pond in Alviso or in other spaces, you know, that, and, and I think the other question with wetlands, and I, I will also say that with dunes, but specifically with wetlands that I hear a lot, especially in the San Francisco Bay Area, is, okay, we've recognized that we need to revive wetlands as part of the solution. Wetlands are amazing at all of these things in terms of responding to climate change and protecting communities from the impact, like the rising tide. But it takes time to, to have these wetland plants take root again. It takes time to rebuild the sediment that has been lost. And where are we going to get the sediment? I, th I think that's a really important question that a lot of people are struggling with. And ultimately, it is a race against time. And if you look at the projections for sea level rise at 2030, 2040, and 2050, you know, we're currently still stuck in some of the planning processes of what it means to actually restore a wetland or revive a wetland or transform a wetland system. And we do get stuck on like what that wetland is supposed to look like with dunes as well. Like, you know, are people willing to share space with plants and possibly bugs and, you know, other kind of less um, pristine, quote unquote, pristine sterile ecosystems that we've come to like accept as what a beach is supposed to look like. So um, yeah, I have a lot of hope, but it's also like, I would say time is of the essence here for these um, nature-based solutions. Yeah, totally. And I'm going to ask you a question about sort of the hope versus despair balance and and your oh responsibility <laughs> as a as an environmental journalist to really sound the alarm, but then at the same time, you know, encourage action. So we're going to hold off on that. Um, Rosanna, we're going to bring in two more uh, participants to our conversation, two leaders of our coast. Um, one is Jennifer Eckerly, my colleague here in the Newsom administration. Uh, Jennifer or Jen leads our Ocean Protection Council and also serves as Deputy Secretary at the Natural Resources Agency on all things oceans and coasts. So she is truly, along with, with a handful of others, spearheading this response to sea level rise and the coast, on the coast. The other is Jennifer Savage, and Jennifer uh, helps lead advocacy for Surfrider. Surfrider is one of the many conservation-based non-governmental organizations that's holding us accountable in government for doing what we need to on sea level rise. And Jen and Jennifer, first of all, A-plus on the backgrounds. You have very appropriate backgrounds to the discussion here today. Um, and maybe I want to start with you, Jennifer Savage. Uh, the Coastal Act is this sort of foundational protector of the coast that not a lot of people know about. And Rosanna, you devoted a chapter of your book to California Coastal Act, which, you know, I think could could be really, really wonky, but you help bring the bring to life the story of the of the Coastal Act, both how it came to be and, and what it does. And Jennifer, I just want to ask you, reflect a little bit on on the Coastal Act, but then take a moment as surf rider to, to share a perspective on sea level rise and how you encounter this book and the work that Rosanna's doing. Sure, and thank you. I'm so honored to be here. And my excitement about Rosanna's book mirrored the whole trajectory that you laid out earlier. So it was perfect. Um, and you know, for, for those folks who might not know Surfrider Foundation, our mission is the protection and the enjoyment of the world's ocean beaches and waves for all people through a powerful activist network. And the enjoyment part is really key. 
And I'll talk about how the Coastal Act furthers and enhances our ability to experience that. But I just would love people to think about all the different ways in which we interact with the ocean, right? Like for most people, it's a refuge. It's a really restorative place. Whether you're in the water surfing or swimming or paddling, you might be walking along the shore, holding hands with somebody you love or building sandcastles with your kids. I've been to a silent disco at Ocean Beach. People throw frisbees around. Like there's, it's just such a place of, of activities and joys. And it's thanks to the California Coastal Act, the beaches are a place where everyone is able to do that, right? Or supposed to be able to access the beach, enjoy the beach. You can have all these experiences regardless of your economic status, your background, your identity. And so for for me, for Surfrider, I really think about sea level rise in terms of coastal access equity and who has it and who's most at risk of losing it. And it does, you know, it does get really personal for me because I grew up in the desert. So I am pretty sure that my parents didn't pay any attention to like beach town politics, you know, much less local coastal programs. And and uh, they did, though, drive us down the 128 many, many weekends in the summertime to go out to Ventura. Sometimes we'd go down to Leo Creo or Point Doom. And thanks to this, like I developed a really deep abiding love of the ocean. And when I had my own kids in the service industry, trying to survive financially, I was not aware of sea level rise politics. I don't even know if that was a thing back then, but you know, I was just trying to take my children to the beach. And even though we were technically poor financially, I could give them this priceless gift of our shared ocean. Right. And so again, like in, thinking about California sea level rise policies, I think a lot about the people inland to who the beaches belong just as much as they do to anyone in Del Mar or Pacifica or other hotspots of conflict. And I think about California with all of our housing inequity and economic challenges, nonetheless has this amazing California Coastal Act guaranteeing for all people a joy, the joy of a day at the beach. But all of those experiences, those potential experiences, they go away if the beach itself vanishes. And if that happens because we're to make hard choices or we don't act in time, well, I mean, I just I don't want the people of California to lose that. And in tangible terms, what that means is being honest about what the people of California stand to lose. You know, from a policy perspective, it means ensuring that the state of um, ensuring that the state protects the rights that people have under the Coastal Act with as much vigor as private property rights are protected. And it just means making sure that we do our absolute best to make the hard political decisions now to hold on to the, our beaches and the joy that they provide for as long as possible. We have the tools and it's following through with the political will. There you go, Jennifer. Rosanna, when you and I were talking before this discussion, you shared that when you you know pitched the book or working with your editors on the book and you said you're going to do a chapter on the Coastal Act, there might have been a little bit of uh, concern around, is that actually going to be is worthy of a chapter? But that as you've gone out, um, that's been a, a point that or a chapter that people have really asked about and liked uh, in this book. So just talk about your decision to spend a whole chapter talking about the Coastal Act and the response you've got. Oh my goodness. And I think my editor, Martina, might be tuning in. So Martina, uh, hello. And also, I mean, I will say that my editor, Martina, pushed me in all the right ways. And 
I, I will admit the first version of the Coastal Act chapter was very legal and very boring. Well, not boring, but I I was very much speaking for like the philosophical reasons why the Coastal Act was important. And Martina was like, if we're going to have a whole chapter on a law, like one legal document and one legal concept, like it needs to be interesting. And so I do I do think it's been fun to see how many people were like, that was my favorite chapter. And I'm like, Oh my God, that was the chapter on like the legal stuff. And that will be all like, thanks to Martina for pushing it. And I think she did threaten to cut it at one point, which made me really double down on making it as interesting as possible. But I will say with the Coastal Act, I think what's, I, I was so like, you know, Jennifer, thank you for just sharing your personal connections to like the importance of this law and what's at stake. And, you know, what we stand to lose as Californians in the process of thinking about how to rewrite the Coastal Act chapter. And I rewrote it so many times. I was really just struck by how, but just how much the Coastal Act still makes sense today. I mean, it was passed in 1976 and sea level rise was not really a thing at that time in terms of the way we're thinking about it now, but it's such a living document. And, you know, we don't have to start from scratch in California when it comes to thinking about how to collectively plan for the future of our coast. And the frameworks already exist. And it was established by a voter initiative. And I think about all of the you know, climate change activism that's happening today, the grassroots protests and just the standing up to like corporate interests and really just the scrappiness versus the, the, the political influence and the power that, you know, is happening today in all these climate change spaces. And you, like I, I'm having chills right now thinking about it, just the parallels to how the people of California gathered together in such grassroots form in the 70s to really pass this law and take the philosophical stand that collectively the coast belongs to all of us in California and there's no such thing as a privatized beach and that we do need to honor the fact that the coast is a dynamic process, a zone, not a line in the sand, and that everyone belongs in this conversation, both people and the ecosystems and the animals and the plants and how do we live in better harmony along this ever shifting line in the sand and so all of that exists in a document that was written in 1976 that continues to be a living document that is interpreted by you know the coastal commission and everyone else in charge of managing and regulating the coast and i i truly am blown away by how the coastal commission has continued to honor and adapt and respond to this mission that was tasked by the people of California in the 1970s. And, you know, I, when I tell people that I am like one person covering the entire California coast, which is more than 1200 miles long and like, you know, more than 60 cities and counties, I also think about how the Coastal Commission has to manage and regulate and be on top of every single inch of coastline along the California coast. Yeah. And I just, it's incredible. But yeah, it's a document passed in the 70s. And we are so ahead of the game in California than a lot of states because we have that framework and that declared set of values that the coast does is a broader public good. Yeah, it's totally true. Jen Eckerly, I want to bring you into the conversation. So Rosanna mentioned the, the California Coastal Commission, which you and I um, work very closely with and you serve on. Um, also, our State Lands Commission uh, that has responsibility for, for our, a lot of our title zone. Uh, the Department of Fish and Wildlife uh, that has an important role. Um, the, our Coastal Conservancy. Um, then there's, there's entities like state parks and Caltrans that all interact with the coast. So how would you say, you know, we're doing collectively as a government responding to this challenge? And maybe share the story of some of our coastal commissioners coming to us and really asking for more coordination, given that they were faced with these issues on a sort of a permit by permit basis. Yeah, thanks, Secretary. And I am also just 
so thrilled to be here in this discussion today. Um, I'll add BCDC to your list because um, they're responsible for, for making sure we're resilient around uh, San Francisco Bay. Um, we have made incredible progress and strides in pulling all of our agency partners together to have a collective and aligned roadmap for how we're doing this, right? Where's our best available science? Um, how are we lining on a set of principles, an action plan, and a roadmap? Um, but really, I think the key point um, that I will reiterate from, from the discussion so far is, is clear vision of how we're doing this together. Um, and I will just bring it back quickly to, to Rosanna's book. So I had never met Rosanna before, and I read the book, and I was so incredibly moved and impacted by it that I that I reached out to her on LinkedIn and and just had to share um, how much it affected me. And I've been doing this work um, in California for over 20 years. And there were two things that I took away from the book. One, um, it made me feel like this work matters, that what we're doing matters and makes a difference. Um, so thank you for that, Rosanna. Um, and then the second piece was, I think it's really easy for us um, in these kind of policy leadership roles, um, I know for myself to get stuck in the weeds, you know, what are our projections and what's our um, guidance gonna look like and how are we gonna do these collective actions at this higher level? But what really impacted me in the book was those personal stories, how you grounded the, the issue, the threat, the challenge in community um, and, the, the personalization of that reminded me, it's all well and good for us to be doing all these things. And it's really important at the state level, but the decisions are happening on the ground. And we have, you did such a good job at painting the picture of what's at stake and how difficult this balancing is, um, but how important it is. We have to pay attention. We can't pretend it's not happening. Um, and it doesn't have to be an all or nothing right? We can plan, we can have pathways, um, and we can take steps now so that the ending of your story or your next story um, is that story of hope and of success. So um, kind of a long-winded way to answer your question, Secretary Crowfoot, but I just, I wanted to kind of articulate how this book um, impacted me and why it was meaningful and also helped ground me in the work that we're doing at, at the highest level um, to make sure that the state is being precautionary, taking this threat seriously, um, and, and making meaningful steps and actions. Because what's at risk is access, habitat, biodiversity, underserved communities, tribal cultural resources, and basically California's identity. Absolutely. And so, the way I talk about it is we're making progress with so much more work ahead. So all of our state agencies are aligned around a set of principles, which is necessary, but not sufficient. So that was the first step about four years ago. Then we developed this action plan agency by agency and what we needed to do to plan for and to adapt to sea level rise. There were guidelines, sea level rise guidelines based on science issued in 2018. And then we'll soon be issuing an updated set of guidelines for planning purposes. But I think we also recognize, to your point, Jen, that there is this sort of local leadership, given that in California, land use decisions are largely the province of, of local governments. So it's sort of this dynamic between the state uh, providing funding, providing guidance, sometimes re 
requirements and then then local communities. And Rosanna, I know you you're you're tracking sort of the policy development that's taken place over the last couple of years, including a bill that passed this last year around really compelling locals to integrate sea level rise. What's your honest assessment of you know where California is as you know state government, local governments, and where we need to be on sea level rise? Oh boy. Also, it's like really uh, fun is probably not the right word. It's it's really interesting to be asked questions. And um, and I guess I will defer to say as a reporter, I should not have opinions. But um, I would just say in terms of like my assessment, I'll just say that I, I have a feeling I will have many, many more years of writing and coverage of this issue to do. Um, I think it's really, I mean, it's incredible to see how much this conversation has grown and expanded, you know, kind of tying some of the points that Jen and Jennifer have said. I mean, five, six years ago when I, or seven years ago when I first started covering this issue, this really felt like an issue that was like a rich people problem that only pertained, like the number of people who told me, oh, I don't own a property on the beach. And now this is truly a conversation that has expanded to people who don't live on the coast, but have a stake in a favorite beach or just truly having this idea of access and equity and also kind of re-empowering and redistributing the power of who gets to say something about the future of our coast. Um, I think that these conversations are happening less in a piecemeal by piecemeal fashion. Cause I think at the beginning, when I first started writing about this issue and I know I, I'm, I feel like everyone's probably nodding, like for a while it was truly done at a property by property level, seawall case by seawall case, local community by local community. And there is this broader, I mean, the fact that the state has a sea level rise action plan with dozens of very specific checkpoints and timelines and, um, stated collective visions and priorities. Like the fact that this is now, there's this consciousness that this is a statewide issue, that this is a broader landscape where the ocean truly knows no city, does not honor property lines, city boundaries, jurisdictional, whatever. You know, this is this is a, something that we collectively need to step up on, but at the same time, we need to honor the individual needs and priorities and concerns that are happening on the ground. So that, that nuance of this conversation has truly been powerful. Um, I mean, I guess like I want to kind of flip the question back onto Jen. I, I'm sorry if this is very reporterly of me, but I'm curious with the book, you know, th that's crazy to me too, how long it takes to publish a book once you're done with the book. So the book's timeline ends in like fall, early fall 2022. And so for me, I've been the book's story. I mean, this is going to be a time capsule of like everything that has happened between 2017 and 2022 on this issue. But I'm curious for Jen, like, where do we go from here and I think maybe to sharpen that question, like, what do you need? Like, what does the state of California need to move forward on this issue? Because for me, as I'm also hearing all of these thoughts, I, I'm reminded of something that Charles Lester actually um, at UC Santa Barbara reminded me of this quote that planning moves at the speed of trust. And I really felt that in the communities I spoke to, the hesitations and the concerns and where the ten tension points are and this idea of building trust obviously takes time and we are running out of time and you know we also need resources to build trust for me like i had the i was lucky enough to be able to go back to these communities to spend time to build trust and write a book and to listen i'm curious jen like what what do you need what does the state need what does your staff and your colleagues need to actually move forward on this issue Thanks for that really easy question, Rosanna. Um, I, <laughs> I I will say um, before I before I answer it, just um, you know, putting a finer point on all the work that we've done to date. We've made incredible investment in habitat restoration and protection. 
Um, as Secretary Crowfoot mentioned, we're hoping to release the next um, iteration of our sea level rise guidance that will update those projections and then provide policy recommendations for applications. So really thinking about, okay, we don't need to plan for seven feet of sea level rise right now, but here's the steps you can take to get there to make it um, a little more easy to kind of get our, our near-term heads around how we plan and adapt. Um, we're doing vulnerability assessments on our, our vulnerable habitats, right? What is at stake and what are the tools that we have um, at our disposal to adapt? Well, a beach that's backed by a bluff, we're going to have uh, less opportunity and options for how we adapt. And we may need to, you know, acknowledge the fact that at some point that beach is going to drown and we're going to need to provide access um, to folks who we're using that beach, right? How is that affecting um, our ability to get to and enjoy the coast? We have um, a significant amount of funding to implement the SB1 grant program. So that's funding to the Ocean Protection Council to invest in local, regional, and tribal um, adaptation planning and projects. So we're really excited, hoping to launch that grant program by the end of this week. Um, and then through all of this, we really are prioritizing getting funding into the communities that need it most, underserved communities, tribal communities, so that we can make sure as a whole, the state is um, prepared and can adapt. So in answering your question, I might put a question back on you. And that is one of the things that I find most challenging in this work is how do we message this in a way that resonates with all of California how do we get people to understand what's at stake, the threat, and to care about the issue, and to then help us take action? Um, and so I heard some um, threads throughout the conversation kind of making it understandable that it's not an all or nothing, that we can take steps to adapt. Um, I think there is still value in clear urgency in the issue. Um, Jen, I think your point about you know, maintaining access for all and that that California's coast is is beloved to residents and visitors alike, and that it is um, a public trust resource for all of us and it's all of our responsibilities to help protect it. Um, but but what other what other messages, Rosanna, when you were um, you know talking to folks up and down the coast, what else would resonate? What else should we be saying and doing at the state level to help kind of make sure we're ready? Um, and that, um, you know, this idea, I, I picked up on this word permanence in your book um, throughout. And it's like, and, and so we need to shift away from that. And we, we need to think about, okay, how do we protect the values of addressing climate change and protecting biodiversity and lifting up equity when the, when the um, landscape is shifting underneath us? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um... Thank you. And I, I really connected with so many of the things that you just said. And I um a couple quick thoughts, and then I'd love to also hear what Jennifer Savage thinks. Um, one one kind of communication thread that I has been picking up that has really resonated with me, and I've seen it pretty effective. And I just want to shout out to the folks at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography for kind of helping me reshape this messaging. But this idea of frequency and compounded effects. You know, we talk so often, like for so long, the conversation was like looking at the projection of what like the sea level rise will be like 
at the end of the century. Seven feet is kind of the extreme. And then we kind of shifted it to 2050. So it feels a little bit more pressing. And, you know, we're, we're now aiming the, I think the collective um, decision from so many state agencies is to pre prepare communities in California for three and a half feet of sea level rise by 2050. And I think the next level to this conversation and this framing is like looking at how frequently these high tide events will happen, how frequently something, the water will break over the seawall, how often a place will flood. And, you know, Laura Engeman kind of presented this notion to me at Scripps where she was saying, at what point does, you know, if something, a property, a critical road, a parking lot, or any other infrastructure that we rely on, at what point if it's flooding like 25% of the year, or like every time it's a king tide, is that essentially underwater? Like, do we actually need to wait for that tide line to move fully into seven feet, or three feet, or one feet to actually take action? So this idea of logging and tracking frequency and, and reframing the conversation on, look how every winter for the last three years, you know, you can't use this road anymore to get to school or to get to work like that framing has been really effective um and i think that's something that i feel the messaging within the science shifting as well and then the other thing that i have found really effective is this the the collective experience that we've all had in, in california of compounded disasters so rather than talk about seven feet of sea level rise in a silo or a, a river flooding in a silo or extreme precipitation in a silo what happens if it's a king tide the ocean's moving in it's the third atmospheric river event in like a week. So the river is already at capacity from absorbing all this water and it, the river is trying to flush into the ocean, but it can't because the, the king tide is pushing in. You know, the soil around us is already at capacity and the groundwater is moving up too because we've absorbed so much water and it's still raining. Like, what do we do? And that is a, happening with greater intensity and greater frequency. And those are truly important moments um, to check in with communities and to talk about actually building resilience and not, again, responding to each of these disasters in silos, but to think about what it means to actually respond and adapt our landscapes in a way that is addressing the entire water cycle and all of these disasters at the same time. And I think frequency and increased intensity happening now and very much so within the next decade is the is a really effective way to communicate this. But I'm curious to Jennifer, if you have other thoughts on that, because you're also on the ground a lot talking to folks. <laughs> yeah, it's a, well, it's definitely a big topic for folks who are on the ground. And I can think of a lot of examples where we have seen like it's no surprise, like at San Onofre State Park, the beach there in the wintertime when the beach gets washed away and then we have unfortunate responses like a ton of, uh, you know, several tons of rocks dropped along as a, an emergency permit. And we, we see a lot of things deemed emergencies that have in fact become absolutely predictable. So I think um, reframing how we define emergency and not making it synonymous with lack of preparation is really key. But to bring it back to, you know, some just the, the kind of ongoing conversations that we need to have in the public sphere, you know, something that Jen touched on and something that you touched on, Rosanna, is, you know, talking about this stuff in public meetings for most people, it's super boring, right? It's really wonky. If I, I like, I can go to the beach and if I say to people, do you know there's going to be three feet of sea level rise maybe? Like even if they say like, I heard about that, they don't know what that means. They have no idea what that looks like. But it's the kind of storytelling that like you did so beautifully in your book that makes it real for people. It's like real images, real experiences, things that anyone in 
you know, in the state can relate to and understand. And that's what makes your book so important and these kind of conversations so important because it makes it accessible to anyone out there. And that means that person can like be inspired to care and hopefully also be inspired to take action, you know, and contact decision makers and all the usual things that the environmental advocacy organization would encourage people to do. Yeah. Well, that's such a good point, Jennifer. And, you know, our agency uh, helps to spearhead the response to wildfire and drought and flooding, which those climate driven disasters feel more uh, present or uh, more urgent. But you know, the, the, the book that Rosanna's written helps us understand sea level rise is here and its impacts are here. You know, it's disrupted uh, rail service from L.A. to San Diego. It's uh, it's driven coastal uh, erosion on bluffs that have been dangerous and, and and killed people. It's creating regular flooding that's swamping neighborhoods. So I think part of it is just helping people understand it's here and doing something about it is not planning for 2050. It's protecting our communities now. Um, believe it or not, it's almost the top of the hour. This conversation has moved fast and I, we could spend a lot of time here today. And we're joined by over 350 people in this discussion. Rosanna, I want to ask you a final question. It's this hope versus despair question. And how do you balance the need to pull the fire alarm on what we're experiencing with climate change and sea level rise, but you know, maintain some level of encouragement for people to actually that they can do something about it? Yeah, no, thank you for asking this question. And, you know, going back to also like how much hope do I inject in the book? And I can promise all 350 people zooming in today that the book doesn't end in despair. There is hope. It's not all doom and gloom. And that is so important to me as a climate communicator and storyteller to make sure that there is hope that people still feel empowered. And I think that's a question, the hope versus despair binary, the hope versus urgency binary is something that every climate journalist struggles with when we write every article that we write in, in communicating this issue. And, you know, too much hope lets people off the hook. You can move on, you can finish reading the article or the book and you can move on to something else. And too little really leads to this paralysis that I'm seeing increasingly that ultimately leads to inaction. And so for me, I've been thinking a lot about this, like in the process of writing this book, I realized that hope and that question of how much hope do I inject into a book is not the emotion that I'm, key emotion that I'm indexing on anymore. It's responsibility. And, and that word has come up a little bit today too. Do Does someone after reading my book or reading one of my articles feel a sense of responsibility to do something? And that do something could be something huge if you're a state legislator or someone truly in power. It could also be just starting a conversation with your neighbor and talking about it because people still don't talk about climate change in a meaningful way on a day-to-day -day basis. And that sense of duty you know, it's almost, it doesn't matter how much hope you have if you feel empowered to do something. And so being able to help people feel brave and to take courage and to feel empowered to do something with this sense of responsibility are kind of the emotions I'm now navigating. And, you know, anger is something that a lot of folks too have kind of indexed on. And there are some studies out there that say that anger is a really powerful motivating factor. And I, I want to honor that too. That's just kind of not my approach to kind of center on anger as the way to guide people and to inspire people. Um, but, and then I think my other thought too, someone reminded me the other day of something that I said years ago that I forgot, but just this idea of climate action versus climate commitment. And I think that that is so important. To, it, it's a slight shift in wording. And again, I'm a person of words, but to tr be truly committed to doing something versus taking action, like that's a, a slight shift. And again, our sense of responsibility. So I would encourage everyone today tuning in, you know, A, thank you for just being willing to have this conversation, to talk about it, to, to, you know, really act on that responsibility, to not look away 
And ultimately to think about what it means to take climate action versus to make a climate commitment and to truly be committed to, you know, not ever getting distracted from this issue or getting pulled away to do something else. And that is true commitment. So, um, yeah, I, I can talk about this forever and I know it's only, it's we're at time, but just, I'm, I'm so grateful for the conversations that this book have helped deepen, have helped open. And I wouldn't have been able to write this book without the work that all of you have been doing. So thank you for that as well. I mean, I am ultimately just the messenger and there is so much hard work ahead, but there has been also so much great work that has been done. And just like, thank you for giving me a story worthy of telling in the entire length of a book and um, for being able to share it with the world. So thank you. Well, huge thanks to you for writing the book. Uh, amidst all the incredible reporting that you do. Clearly, if the emojis are a judge, that you've got uh, a lot of people that are very, very moved by this book. Gita, my colleague, has put the book and a link to the book in the chat again for those who haven't read it. I, I really recommend it. It is not only a page turner, but it's a way that kind of brings together so much of what we've been talking about in such a human and compelling way. Um, so Rosanna, thanks for all that you do. And Jen and Jennifer, thanks for joining us and making it even more of an interesting conversation. Um, as we close here, we'll just uh, show a slide on the screen. If you have any follow-up questions uh, or information you want to share with us about this discussion with Rosanna, Jen, and Jennifer, please email us uh, on this email. Or if you have suggestions for future conversations, please let us know. And again, we'll have a recording of this discussion as well as a copy of the links that we've provided on our website, resources.ca.gov. Rosanna, we leave with climate commitment, and a sense of hope. Uh, thanks to all that you're doing uh, in your incredible reporting and book writing. So thanks once again, and um, we'll Thank see you. everybody down the road. Thank you. Well, thanks, folks. We've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks for joining me. It's been great. Thanks also to Rosanna for writing the book and reporting on what's happening with coastal issues in California. Now you'll find a link for the book in the show notes. Also, there'll be a link for the California Natural Resources Agency. Now, I'd love you to follow this podcast because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. And beyond that, I'd love to hear from you. What do you think about this podcast, good or bad? Please let me know. Don't hold back. Find me by email at number 7 at icloud.com. And please share this with your friends because we all need to know all we possibly can about the climate crisis. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Now personally, stay safe and take care.